children, you are free to go. Miss Heather's back there. Trevor's waving his hands. They're so excited to have y'all. I just love singing that song. My word, it is, it is such a, just a joy to sing that with you and feel the Holy Spirit's presence here. We're, that's a song that is about surrender and commitment. You are giving everything over to the Lord. And I'm sure there's some people in here who aren't able to fully sing that song. Like, that's, that song is a challenge for you to say those words. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that directly deals with that today. So take your Bibles, turn to the book of James. James chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Again, today we're in week five of a series that I'm calling Faith Does. This is a series um, just through the book of James. And the, the message of this letter is about how you can have a genuine, authentic Christian life. How you can represent your Savior Jesus Christ in a way that has an high, a high fidelity sound. Okay, It's not distorted. It's not fuzzy. It's not giving off the wrong vibes. A lot of, unfortunately, a lot of... Christians, professing Christians, don't live up to the standard that Jesus Christ gives us. We don't glorify and emanate his life with our lives. And that actually produces the wrong sound, the wrong, um, the wrong transmission to those who don't know Jesus Christ. So throughout this book, James has been going through different ways that we can actually show our real faith. And we're seeing that faith does. Faith produces some love, it produces some good works, it produces great things. In the passage at hand, this morning, I will tell you right now, right up front, it's going to be a difficult one, all right? If you're not familiar with this, you're going to read this and you're going to hear this and you're going to, you're going to squirm a little bit uh, because the message is a difficult one to understand. And I'll tell you why. It's because at face value, if you remove it from its context, it sounds completely contradictory to the rest of the New Testament. And we have to, first of all, find out what James is actually saying before we can even actually apply the message of what he has to us. So, so here's the message of the gospel. Um, Romans 3.28. This is what you hear every week here at Doxa Church. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You hear that every week, right? It is finished. There's nothing we can do. Um, Ephesians 2, for we are saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation has nothing to do with you, you earning it. None of us in this room will ever be good enough to earn it. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that only comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says, therefore is now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. But here's a preview of what we're about to read in James 2.24. James 2.24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See that verse there? I got both those two verses right up front because this should make us a little tad uncomfortable. What is going on? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Whenever you have a passage of Scripture like this that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of what you know to be true about Scripture, that just means there's something that we don't get about the passage because if there's one contradiction, if there's one error in Scripture, 
uh, our church is in trouble. We may as well just fold our doors, uh, close our doors. I, I'll be looking for a new way to provide for my family. And Christianity as a whole may as, well, may as well fold. Okay? If we don't have an authoritative truth source, the word of God right here that we can rely on, and there's one error in it, we're really in trouble. So we have to find out what does James actually mean? Uh, I hope you feel this tension. So let's read James 2. We're going to go through verses 14 through 26. And I know right now we're, we're uncomfortable for those of us who are like, what is, what is happening? Um, I want you to take that tension right into these verses and let's go through it together. All right, verse 14. Let's pick it up there. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But, if, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demon believes and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So I told you this was going to be a little tough. There is tension here. And today's message is going to be a little different. All right? We have three applicational points. They're going to all be in the second half of the message today because I want to spend some time, first of all, diving into what James is actually saying. Let's get on the same page with James first, okay? He clearly has one main message here. It is... Faith without works is dead. He says it in verse 17, and he says it again in verse 24. So his whole argument is centering around that. But I love how when you seem to have a contradiction and you, under, you start to understand it, it solidifies your trust in the Bible. And that's what I want to do right now, first of all. Okay? So finding a resolution. Here's the thing about the Bible that a lot of people like underestimate. They don't really think about it too often. But the Bible is written by different authors throughout thousands of years with different languages, right? And what do we know about different people in different periods of time, different languages? They're going to use different, different words. They're, they're going to they're describe things differently, right? We even see this in the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all were witnesses of what Jesus was doing. But when you read the Gospels, it's not like everything is lined up exactly perfect. Every I is dotted and every T is crossed, and they all say the exact same thing in the exact same way. 
What would happen if they did that? What would we call that in the court of law if, if every single story was relayed exactly the same? In the court of law, that's called collaboration, right? It's like, okay, that's, that's a little shady. <laughs> if we know human nature, there's a problem here. If they've lined up their whole story and they all see the exact same stuff, that means they're probably hiding something because they got together ahead of time to work out the details. But Matthew will describe something in a completely different way from a different angle than Mark describes it because he got the account from Peter in a different way. And, and Luke describes something totally different than the way John described it. I mean, not totally different. You match it up and you see, oh, yeah, they were looking at the same thing. They just used different words to describe it. They were looking at it from a different aspect. And that's one of the strengths of the gospel. They all complement each other in the fact that they're saying different things different ways, but it all means the same thing. That's the same exact principle that we have in the entirety of Scripture. All of Scripture works the same way that the Gospels work. And Paul writes differently than James. Um, so what do we know about Paul? What do we know about James? And I'm spending a little bit of time on the front end to, to, to set this up. But they are saying the same things. How do we know they're saying the same things? Do they really agree with each other? So people aren't robots. It would be really boring if everyone just talked in black and white, like facts, all the time, right? Uh, thankfully, people have, have character, and they have some qualities, and they have, they have color, right? Paul is more of your, give it to me straight. I'm a lawyer. I'm going to hit you over the head with the truth, and I'm just going to drop truth bombs on you. He is straightforward. James is a little bit more colorful. He's the type of guy who likes to get into character and debate with you. He likes to go in the roundabout way to prove his point. And if you could say it this way, like James is, is kind of like the New Testament author of like Christopher Nolan. He wants to describe something in a way that makes you think. He wants to get in there and really go in deep and have you think about it from an op, you know, not the normal way. And that's what James is doing here in this passage as he starts going through some debates. He starts talking about this different ways. He's more of the wordsmith. And uh, so hang tight with him. Let's discover what he is saying. And this is where I think we should start. There are two ways that communication is unique and also challenging. Words and context. All right, so first of all, words. Sometimes words can mean different things, right? We all know this. You take the word rock, and uh, it could either mean a stone. It could mean a type of music. It could be a compliment. Oh, man, that guy's a rock. He's built like a rock. It could be... It could just be, I mean, a, a verb. Oh, what you do, it rocks, yay. Like, I mean, okay, the way you determine what version of the word rock you're using is based on the context. So same words can have different meanings. Usually the way you determine that is through the context. And the two words that we're having difficulty with here in James chapter 2, the words justify and the word faith. Because both those seem to be in contradiction to what Paul says when he uses those words. So justify could mean a couple different things. First of all, it could mean to make it right. I have a debt that I need to pay off, so you justify the balance. You pay it off. Or justify could mean to prove that something is true. Can you justify that statement that you just said? You believe that's true. Show me. I justify it. So the way that Paul uses the word justified is in the sense of a declarative act of God. You were justified by faith. God declares you righteous positionally 
by imputing into your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul is using the legal definition of justify when he uses it. James is using it in another way. James' use of justify in this context of this passage is to vindicate or prove to show what's really there. You follow that? Secondly, uh, James doesn't disagree with the gift of salvation. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, James 1.18 is the most important verse in this entire book. If you want to back up and read James 1, 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then in James 2, 5, a verse that we saw last Sunday, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. You don't get chosen. You don't become an heir without receiving a gift, right? Can you earn that? Can you earn uh, 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 an inheritance? No, you were born with it. You receive it as a gift. So James is very much on the same page as Paul. They were in the Jerusalem council together in Acts 15. They shook hands. They hugged it out. They agreed on the gospel together. So James, when he is using the word justify, he's using it in a different sense. And also with the word faith, he's using the word faith in a different way that Paul uses it. Look at verse 14 of James 2. Verse 14, you can underline this if you're, if you're a Bible underliner because this is very helpful. If someone says he has faith, that's a key phrase. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him. Some translations will say, can such a faith save him? Do you see what's going on here? James isn't just using the word faith the way Paul uses it. He's actually talking about a profession of faith. So, so if someone says, hey, I, I love Jesus, can that profession of faith alone, right there, the simple fact that you claim Jesus Christ, can that faith save you? So to review, I have a little slide here for you. Just to sum it all up, Paul, when he says justified, there's his definition, the once and for all act of God where he declares you righteous. Faith, confessing your personal sin and believing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for the payment of your sin penalty. That's what Paul's using, his terms. James, his word for justify is evidence that proves your validity. And then faith here in this passage is a profession of faith. You see how these two passages are in complete harmony with one another? They complement one another. I hope that clears it up. Two different guys talking about the same thing with different words. Now, deep breath. Whew. Now that we got that cleared up, we don't have to fold our church. I can still, I can still keep supporting my family through doxa. The Christian faith is going to hold. There's no contradictions in the Bible. Now let's allow James to humor us because he has a point. And he's going to go to great lengths to delve into this point. How do you know that faith without works is dead? And how can this apply to you personally right now? Well, the first point here is stop relying on a profession of faith to save you. That's verses 14 through 17. James is coming out swinging. If you haven't already picked up his, uh, his intensity and you know, just his passion right now, this is, this is clearly a topic that is near and dear to him. And it should be a topic that's near, to dear, near and dear to us because we live in the South and I know people who claim to know Jesus Christ 
in everything I see from, I've known them for years, and everything I know about their life is no love, no compassion for other people. They have that, that snobby sense of looking down on anybody who can't advance them, the stuff that we looked at last week. Everything about what James talks about with pure religion is kind of like directed at that, that person. Some of you may be here today. You had a hard time singing you know, as you found me. It's like, am I, do I really believe this song? I'll hum along. Like, this is a real topic for us, right? And he says, what good is it, my brothers? Every time he started out one of these messages, have you noticed almost every one of our units of scripture here in this series, he's starting out, my beloved brothers and sisters? Whenever he does that, he's about ready to cut to the bone, okay? <laughs> he comes in soft, and here comes the punch. If someone says they have faith, but they don't have any works, can that kind of faith save him? Does saying you're a Christian and then producing no fruit actually mean you're saved? The answer is no. Simply professing and claiming to be a Christian doesn't make it real. And I know some of us are getting that emoji symbol with the big eyes right now, like, oh, okay. Oh, we're going there because James is going there. You, you should have evidence of your faith. Your identity should change your activity, right? There's that recurring theme. So you have, to, you have to ask yourself, is my faith alive? Has Jesus changed my heart? Do I have guilt over sin? If not, are you really breathing spiritually? I could say that I'm the starting quarterback of the Carolina Panthers, right? You could say anything. Doesn't make it real. Doesn't make it true. Honestly, you could, the way that, that lie, fabrication I just made up, I'm the starting quarterback of the Carolina Panthers. That, in a spiritual sense, is the same thing a lot of people do when they say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And they have never confessed. They have never repented. They don't have the outworking of the Holy Spirit in their life at all. No conviction of the Holy Spirit is a problem. No fruit of the Spirit, the peace, joy, peace, patience, tenderness, a lack of love in their heart. James is calling these people out. In this letter, it was written to the 12 tribes in dispersion. These are people who were claiming to follow Jesus Christ. This is, the audience is the church, right? So this is for us. And James's first argument is, if all you have is a profession of faith, that's about as, that's about as valuable as a piece of paper you printed off the internet that says you have real estate on the moon, okay? Like it's not worth much just simply claiming to be a Christian. In verse 18, we find his second argument. We're going to just move on from that one and go right into the next one. His second argument about how faith without works is dead, and it's this. Number two, don't make excuses for people who try to separate faith and fruit. You can't separate these two. And this one is, verse 18, is actually a harder verse to wrap your mind around. Look at, his, uh, look at his debate here. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works, in quote. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I've read a lot of words about this verse because this one is, it is tough to get a handle on. And the quotation marks aren't inspired, but there's really no better way to grammatically read it. Just take my word for it. I've, I've read way too much on this. The best way to understand this sentence is to say, that's the quote. You have these two people. You have faith. I have works. We're good. 
That's not okay either. That's what James is saying. For this person, the temptation is, you know what? You're okay. I'm okay. We're close enough. Um, James is role-playing, and he's coming at this other angle where you're dealing with the nine personality. This is the peacemaker. He doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. You want everyone to feel comfortable. I mean, some of us are wired that way. Some of us are not. Some of us are fine with challenging other people. Uh, but, but you have this desire to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, and you, you know who you are in this room. Okay, I, I, I just want you to be happy. Have you ever heard that before? We, we, we can all, we're close enough, just be happy. That's where James is directing this. Like, no, you can't have faith, you can't just have your works, and we'd be fine. These two things have to go together. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Philip Melanchthon, just listen to that name. Uh, that is, if that's a, not a name of a theologian, I don't know what is. I, I think his name fits him perfectly. But Philip Melanchthon was the protege of Martin Luther. Okay, so he's this German reformer. About this verse, he said, We are saved by faith alone, but that faith never stays alone. It always begins to express itself by works. You see that? So the application here is the same. Faith without works is dead. But this is a challenge for everyone who tries to separate the two. James is going the extra mile to emphasize that you can't separate these two things. And you shouldn't be okay with people who profess to, profess to you know, Christ and just do their own thing. We have to let them know that a professional loan is worthless and they can't straddle the fence and have it both ways. Good works without Jesus aren't going to work either. Faith and works have to complement each other. You can't just pick one. So here's where it gets tricky. We can't pretend everything is all good all the time. With our friends who claim to know Jesus have no fruit in their lives. You can't pretend it's all fine. We have to do something to lovingly help people who don't even realize they are lost. This is where it gets personal for us. How do you have those conversations? How do you have a hard conversation like that when their life is really inconsistent and you are burdened for them? Ooh, controversy, right? I mean, I think two and a half out of nine people are comfortable with controversy. You can ask me later how I got to that number. But I think, uh, I think two and a half out of nine are good with that. The rest of us don't want to go there and have that controversy. So let's hand the mic off for, to a couple different voices for a second. Let's talk about how we can, we can actually have those conversations. We're going to break away from the immediate text for just a moment. Ephesians 4. Let's go back to Paul. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here's a tip. This is how you engage in those uncomfortable conversations. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Jesus Christ. So that has to be bedrock foundational in any of these conversations. It needs to come from the motivation of love, not I'm going to correct them and get them lined up correctly. Like, no, I love them. And they need to see that from you, a spirit of love coming from you. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 is another helpful text on how to have conversations like this. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We could spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to keep moving, though. There's a hundred different passages we could go into the Psalms where David realizes, I need to pray. And believe me, if you're going to go into a conversation like this, you have to pray up. Be led of the Holy Spirit. A lot of time in Scripture is spent on this point. And even practically, in Joshua 21, you see a political story where all these differing parties want to do different things. And there's a really practical lesson from Joshua 21, and that is speak to people, sit down at a table, and talk about it, okay? Talk about your differences. Don't just talk about them and talk about people and talk about the problems. Talk to people about the issue, okay? That's also important. We live in a world that is dominated by identity politics. The world system is trying desperately to divide us around a subset of our identity and to elevate that into the ultimate thing that matters. And identity politics tells us we can't even speak in other people's lives. That's wrong. It builds ideological walls. Those are lies straight from the pit of hell. You love someone, you care for someone, no one's the same. But we all have one savior, we have one God, there's one truth, and we can talk about that with each other. We have to engage in talking about the truth. The Bible says don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have to stop worrying about all the people who don't like us because we love Jesus. And we have to just go there and lovingly share truth. Jared Wilson had a tweet about this idea this week. I, I love following this guy on Twitter. It really resonated with me. I'll show you. He said, John the Baptist lost his head for speaking the truth to power. We're afraid of just losing a seat at the table. Okay, Christians? Let's wake up. We have to engage in truth. So we've heard from Peter. We've heard from Paul to kind of back up what James is saying because James is in pure debate, debate mode right now. How about Jesus, though? Let's, let's wrap this whole little, little break up, like this little side, side avenue up, and, and think about what Jesus does when it comes to engaging in difficult conversations. We can go in a lot of different places, but I think one of the best places to go to is John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And first of all, you see with Nicodemus, Nicodemus started that conversation with Jesus because of the way Jesus lived his life, first of all, okay? So Jesus didn't have to, like, beat the door down and come after him. Uh, Jesus lived a life that made people say, hey, he's got something, he understands something that I clearly don't have, and Nicodemus came to Jesus Christ. And the way Jesus talked with Nicodemus, if you follow John 3, we're not going to read the whole chapter today, but... Jesus didn't just go the, you know, the Paul approach of like smacking him in the chin with the truth immediately and putting him on defensive. Like he didn't do that. He just gave him just enough to lead Nicodemus to the next question, right? The whole thing is just one question after the next. And when Nicodemus isn't asking the right question, Jesus asks him a question. Jesus led that conversation to the point where he got to John 3.16 and he, and he was able to tell him the truth. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He didn't start with that. 
Jesus led Nicodemus to that point to get to that truth, and he did it by a series of questions and by setting Nicodemus up every step of the way that he needed to go. So ask questions. Jesus is the model for that. Play it just like Jesus did in John 3. Now, those are some practical ways that we can just not make excuses anymore for not letting people separate faith from fruit. Good fruit is an evidence of faith. So back to James, you can, you can put on good works for a little while. You can fake faith for, for a time. That's going to be a burden. You're going to grow weary. You're going to burn out from that. You can't separate these two, and it's necessary if you love people to go there with them and talk about it with them. Faith without works is dead, and here's how John Calvin described this verse. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which, which justifies is not alone, just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. Faith and works complement each other just like warmth and light emanate from the sun. Do you see the correlation there? I thought that was a good example. So those are the first two arguments that James gives us and that he presents. And the rest of this passage, he's getting very specific into proving and driving home this point that faith without works is dead. So point three today is this. You've got to ask yourself a question, all right? Ask if you have more than knowledge and reverence. Ask yourself that. Do I have more than knowledge and reverence? Look at, verses nine, look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, oh, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes into two examples with Abraham and Rahab. We're going to get there in a second. But this first verse, verse 19, is just pure sarcasm. You think you're doing well because you believe there is one God? Well, you know what? That's a good starting place. I mean, the Jews believed God was one, and everyone around them believed in multiple deities. They were pagans who believed, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, they believed in all kinds of gods. So the, so the Jews had that right. They believed that God is one. But James is like, big whippity doo da. okay? That's not going to save you. Even the demons believe that God is one. They believe the truth, true theology. They know truth about God. They witnessed it, okay? I dare say the demons know the word of God better than some of us in here. They know the truth. So what's going on with demons? They believe that God is one. They even shudder. They even, some translations say, tremble. They have a holy fear. They have this reverence and respect. And you know what? A lot of people are just like that. A lot of people I know, they know that Jesus died on the cross. They know that God is one. They respect the man upstairs. But just like the devils, what's missing why aren't demons saved if they believe that God is one and they know the correct theology and they even fear God? Why, why are they against God? It's because they have never repented. Do you see that? They have never seen their rebellion against God and turned away from that. And because they have never repented of their sin, 
in rebellion against God, they don't have any love. And there are a lot of people who are in the same place. They know truth about God. They respect God. They respect other people who have faith. But they have never repented themselves. And this is something that you have to ask yourself. You have more than knowledge. You have more than reverence. Lastly, James proves this point that your faith never stays alone. It always expresses itself by works by giving example of two lives who repented and then they were changed. They changed into people who loved. These two examples are Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, the, the father, the patriarch of our faith. And for the Jews, you can't start a conversation about faith without starting with Abraham, really. Um, in the same sentence, though, he uses Rahab. And that says something. This is a Gentile woman of sin, okay? He's using them together to prove his point. It's repentance from your old way, and it's being changed by God into someone who loves in a new way. Um, I think it's really, really awesome that James uses both of these two. And actually, Matthew uses both of them when he's talking about the line of Jesus Christ. And even the author of Hebrews uses both Rahab and Abraham together as an example. They have a lot of things in common. They both showed hospitality to the strangers who visited them. They were both foreigners among other people, and they were both ancestors of Jesus Christ. But these two were on equal footing, not because of what they did in their past. As a matter of fact, James doesn't even mention what Rahab did. He doesn't even mention Abraham's mistakes either. He doesn't even bring up the fact that when Abraham misled her own people to protect the Jewish spies who were hiding in their house, that she misled them with untruth. He doesn't talk about her actions, her past, her works, nothing about what she did, nothing about all the things that Abraham, all the mistakes he made. Those aren't even brought up. The only thing here that matters to God is they had faith, and their faith produced loving works. They, the evidence of their faith was that they did something with it. And that's the way God looks at all of us. It's not your past that matters anymore. It's do you believe that God sent a Savior? And in both, both Abraham and Rahab, they believed that God was sending one, a Messiah. They didn't know, they didn't have all the terminology that we have, but they looked forward to the Messiah. They believed that God was going to send a Savior of the world to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And because they looked and had faith in that, their faith produced works. They displayed it through love and sacrifice. And here it is again. James's last example, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, this is where the rubber really meets the road, and you have to ask yourself these questions. Am I spiritually alive? Okay? Because faith that doesn't have any fruit is like a body without a soul. It's just an empty shell. Do you have more than knowledge? Do you have more than respect and acknowledgement of a higher power? A faith that is fruitless and devoid of works is not a saving faith. It's the definition that James gave us that, that can't save us. It's the faith for foolish people, verse 20. It's the faith that in the end is useless. So don't waste your time on this. 
Worship team, you can come up right now. We have to confess our sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your old way and give your life to him. And stop kidding yourself with this profession of faith that doesn't really do any good. You're not fine without Jesus. Religion without the grace of Jesus will lead to shame. It will lead to misery. You won't be able to keep it up. James has been very clear about that from chapter 1 on. And I am not here today to make you doubt your salvation. That is not my goal. It's actually assumed that you are going to struggle. As a matter of fact, in two more verses, James chapter 3, verse 2, he says that we all struggle in many ways. Okay? We're, we're going to deal with the effects of sin. We still have a sin nature that we're wrestling with, that we're trying to get past. But you can't write a profession all the way to eternity. There has to be a change that happens inside of your heart. And the way that you know you have this is the Holy Spirit doesn't let you get away with sin. Okay? When you're doing something that ro- that's wrong, that's contrary to the nature of God, it's in opposition to the glory that you're supposed to be showing, you will know it in your heart. And you'll know, ah, I got to stop this. I, I, I got I to change this. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin. If you have that going on and you want to be saved, let me tell you, repentance is there. Life changes happen. Love is being produced and showing forth. And the Holy Spirit won't let you run away from God either. You cannot run away from God if you are his child. He won't, he won't let it happen. No one can pluck, pluck you out of the Father's hand. So this isn't about you doubting your salvation. This is about people who don't have salvation waking up and saying, do I have the same profession of faith that anybody Joe Blow has that doesn't know Jesus? Am I basically the equivalent of what a demon is in the sense that like, I know the truth, I haven't done anything with it and never confessed it and repented? Faith and works complement each other. You can't fake it forever. Your fruit always reveals your true roots. So James has had his debate hat on in this chapter, but the question that you have to ask yourself is, are you just playing a character? Are you just like playing this role because it's convenient for you and it, and it helps you out right now in your current status in life? There are less and less cultural Christians out there because our culture is changing to the point that it doesn't really advance you very much to be a Christian like it used to. But there's still a lot of people who think they know Jesus. They think they're good with God and they don't have a real relationship with him. Stop doubting God if you already have the Holy Spirit, if you already have a love and a desire for him, to live for him and to glorify him, I don't want you to sit here and just doubt that. Know the truth. You are his and he is yours. He has got a plan for you. He has gifted you. The challenge is to examine your heart. And for most of us here today, I know most of you, okay? I know that you know God, that he has a plan for you, that he loves you. So the challenge for you is just to start living that way. Take the faith that you have been given by God and start loving him and sharing him with others. Would you stand up? We're going to sing to our Savior. Jesus is the way maker. He's the one that makes this all possible. And right now in this service, let's sing to him and let's thank him for what he has done in our lives.
most of us know this song. Why don't we just sing it together this morning? Worship you. 